Um, but you can go ahead and turn to Coloss- uh, Colossians in your Bibles. And just to set the stage and have some context and appreciate the, this epistle, it, it, is, it is rich in doctrine, it is rich in theology, it is rich in exhortations in Christian living, and it is so short. There's only 95 verses that are divided into four chapters. And if you really want to understand how the letter breaks down, the first two chapters primarily, primarily contain doctrinal instruction concerning the person and work of Christ. So the doctrine or the theology focused on the person and work of Christ. And then the next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, primarily contain practical application for the Christian in light of that doctrinal instruction. Paul stated in this letter that the goal of his ministry was to make the word of God fully known to the saints so that they would become mature in Christ and remain firm in their faith. And really, that is, that is the goal of every Christian ministry. That's the goal of every church ministry. That's the goal of our church, is that we might be in the word and ministering the word of God to one another and through the, the preaching and teaching ministry so that we all might grow up in Christ, that we might become mature in him, and we might be rooted and built up in him, remain firm in our faith in him to the end. That is the goal of ministry. And that's Paul's goal. And in keeping with that goal, Paul, in the first half of his letter, focused on presenting to the Colossians the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. That is, Christ's supremacy over all creation and his sufficiency in salvation. Paul said he is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him. The Colossians, who had received the gospel message and put their faith in Christ, had been reconciled to God on the basis of Christ's voluntary death on the cross in their place, which satisfied God's wrath against them for their sins. The one who's supreme over all the creation is the one who came and died in their place for their sins so that they might be reconciled to God. His work, the supreme one's work, Christ's work, is sufficient for salvation. And because Christ died for them, because Christ died for everyone who believes the gospel, and thus made peace by the blood of his cross, as Paul wrote in his letter, we all would be, will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God because of the work of Christ. So Paul wrote to the Colossians and he reminded them that because of the work of Christ, their record of debt towards God had been canceled. It was set aside and nailed to the cross, he said, and, and in Christ they were forgiven of all their sins. That is good news. That is gospel truth. And the same hope belongs to every one of you who believe the gospel and have repented of your sinful ways and are trusting now, continuing to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your record of debt towards God has been canceled because it was nailed to the cross. Christ satisfied that debt so that you might receive forgiveness and eternal life through faith as a gift, through faith in him. In this letter, Paul also warned the church. Namely, in chapter 2, he, he, he focuses on a problem that they were facing. He warned the Colossians not to be led astray by the false teachers in their area, no matter 
how well-spoken or knowledgeable or religious and disciplined they seemed to be. They were spreading false teaching, false doctrine, doctrine that was contrary to the gospel. These teachers were undermining the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Their religious philosophy and traditions included strict rituals and regulations, harsh treatment of their bodies, called asceticism. They think somehow this makes them more spiritual because of how little they care about their physical body. And supposed charismatic experiences, this is what characterized them. Their claims of having visions and experiences with God. And Paul declared that all these things were spiritually empty and of no value in stopping the indulgence of sinful desires. It's just external spirituality, so-called religion and spirituality. The false teachers did not have true knowledge of Christ and faith in Christ, and therefore whatever they did have was vacuous. It was empty. It was of no value. It had no power. Their so-called spiritual devotion to God had no power and did not result then in truly godly living. Now, after explaining the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ and exposing the error and deception of the false teachers in the first half of this letter, Paul then, in the second half, began to exhort the Colossians towards Christ-centered living, which is true spiritual devotion to God. Or we say it the other way. If you want to know what true spiritual devotion to God looks like, it can be summed up as Christ-centered living. This is living in light of the reality that Jesus Christ is God the Son, the preeminent and all-sufficient one, through whom we have been forgiven and reconciled to God, in whom we have eternal life and the hope of glory, and from whom we receive, by faith, endless grace and wisdom and empowerment for life and godliness here and now. That's Christ-centered living. And the specific passage we're going to focus on this morning is right at the beginning of this section, right at the turning point of the letter as he moves into application, exhortations in light of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Right in the beginning of chapter 3, that is our text, the first four verses. And in these verses, Paul sets the stage for the many practical exhortations he's about to give on Christ-centered living. And he sets the stage by pointing us to the kind, of, well, the kind of perspective that we ought to have in light of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Let's read the text. Verses 1 through 4. This is what he wrote. To set the stage for the practical exhortations that they might have the right perspective in light of what Christ has done. Here's what he wrote. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what Paul is basically saying in this passage is that we need to maintain a heavenly perspective on our earthly lives. And again, I thought this would be fitting, uh, thinking of 
coming off of Thanksgiving, but we're, we're entering into, well, a new year is approaching. And maybe getting our minds around, you know, usually we have New Year's resolutions where we kind of take stock of how the year has gone, maybe some changes we would like to make. Well, let's start with this. Let's address how we've been thinking. Let's address our perspective on our own lives. And, and let's add this into maybe some of those goals for the new year and even getting a head start. Maintaining a heavenly perspective on our earthly lives. We need to do this because a Christ-centered mind is essential to Christ-centered living. If we're going to glorify Christ for our lives, we need to have a Christ-centered mind. Paul begins with the mind because our thinking needs to be addressed first if we're to live in a manner worthy of Christ. One commentator puts it this way. Paul begins by calling the readers to that preoccupation with heavenly reality that is the hallmark of true spirituality and the starting point of practical holiness. You know, we can sometimes read the exhortations and commandments of Christ and Scripture and say, all right, I'm going to do this, but we're not thinking about it rightly. Maybe our motiva- motivations are off. We're, just trying, we're kind of trying to do it on our, in our own strength, in the flesh, so to speak. But we're called to rely upon the Spirit's enablement And we also ought to be doing it with the right perspective on why we're seeking to uh, obey the commands of Christ. We want to orient our lives around him, and we want to seek to honor him and live in a manner worthy of him. So our thinking has to be focused on that. Verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now when Paul says, "If If then you have been raised with Christ... He is, he is not referring to the bodily resurrection of those who are in Christ, of course, which is an event that is still future, it's still yet to come. But he's speaking of us being raised now. And he's referring to our spiritual resurrection, which occurred when? When God, by his spirit, gave us a new heart so that we repented and believed the gospel and placed our faith in Christ as Lord. We were dead in our sins. God made us alive, and it's at that moment that we were raised with Christ. We, we were made alive, we repented and believed the gospel, placed our faith in Christ, united with him. We are raised with Christ, therefore, spiritually now. And this spiritual resurrection is called regeneration. It is the new birth, and it is in this moment that a spiritually dead sinner is made alive and is joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, by virtue of our union with Christ, being joined to him, united with him by faith, we are no longer who we once were. A radical transformation has occurred. Our old selves, who were dead in sins, enslaved to sin, following the course and pattern of this fallen world and rebellion against God, our old selves will... They have died, and we have been raised to a new life in Christ. It's not just believing a set of facts, right? God does a work within you, gives you a new heart, a new spirit. He places the spirit within you, gives you spiritual life, and you are said to be a new creation in Christ. All who are born again through faith in Christ share, then, in Christ's risen and glorified life. 
This new life that you have in him is, is new and transformed and empowered because you are united to him who is risen and glorified and will enable you to walk in a manner worthy of him and plans to make you perfect and complete in him. Now, while we, while we look ahead to the hope of our bodily resurrection unto glory after death, we have that hope. Christ was the first, and we will share in a resurrection like his, a bodily resurrection like his one day. Paul's point here is that our spirits have already been raised to life with Christ, and therefore we are to be living in light of that reality here and now. Paul said in his letter to the Christians in Rome that we have been raised with Christ in order that we might walk in newness of life here and now. And here in Colossians, Paul prefaces his practical exhortations with the statement, you have been raised with Christ. And the rest of chapter 3 is, therefore, here is how you ought to live. One commentator says, because of our identification with Jesus, we have been granted new life, which gives us the capacity to live a new kind of life, the ability to live a new kind of life. The new, that new kind of life will be described in detail in the following verses in Paul's text here. But don't miss the fact that if you are in Christ, then you have the ability to live the sanctified life he has called you to live. When you read the, his, his teaching, when you read the epistles, giving us instruction how we ought to live, the manner in which we ought to live, you have the ability to do that. Because you're no longer a slave to sin, and now you're actually a slave of Christ. And he's equipped you, not only with a new heart, but he's given you the Spirit of God to enable you to walk in his steps, to obey his commandments. We have the ability to live the sanctified life that we read of in Scripture that we're called to. Because you are in Christ, you have been set free from sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. Sin is still around, but it's no longer that, well, I can't honor Christ. I can't obey these commandments. I can't because my sin. Well, no, no, the power of your sin is broken if you are in Christ. And he's giving you the ability to walk in a manner worthy of him. You are free from sin. You belong to Christ now. You are now his slave. And by his sufficient grace and the Holy Spirit's enablement, you are able now to practice righteousness, and to carry out the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you. And you might wonder, well, what are those? It's not just a generic statement. Well, walk in good works. Do good works. Well, all of the exhortations, all the commands that follow, even in this letter, are all those specific ways in which we walk in good works. Personal holiness, uh, how we relate to one another, how love towards neighbor, love towards the brothers and sisters in Christ, love towards the church, um, love towards our household, those things are uh, fleshed out, what they look like. All of that's spelled out in the rest of the letter. Now, here's the question, though, is how do we, when we keep reading and we get all these exhortations of Paul and Howard live, well, how do we begin to do these things? In the light of the new life we have in Christ, how are we to walk in that newness of life? How do we go about living in a manner worthy of Christ? In this fallen world. And Paul says in verse 1, this is, he's answering that question. He's telling them how. 
How are they to start? He says what? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The command is in the present tense, and it is a call to continuous action. Be seeking things that are above where Christ is. Be seeking them. In other words, be striving for, be devoting serious effort towards the things that are important to God, the things that he delights in, the things that are of value beyond this present age in which we live. Those are the things that are above And this is reminiscent of Christ's instruction to his disciples that they should seek first and foremost, what? God's kingdom and his righteousness. And and he also instructed them that they should store up for themselves treasures in heaven and be rich toward God. That's the proper priority for the Christian. Seek God's kingdom and righteousness, store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, be rich toward God. That's seeking first the things that are above. When Paul says, be seeking things above where Christ is, he does not mean that we should completely check out and have no connection to or concern for the world in which we live and just sit on a mountaintop somewhere and contemplate God. It's not what he means. Rather, what he means is that we should live in this world in light of the world to come. That is, in light of the coming kingdom of God of which we've been made citizens. That's how we ought to live. That's where our eternal home will be in the age to come, and we should live in light of that. Our wealth and possessions, our social status in this life will all pass away. And these things people chase after and devote all their time and energy and effort and are so anxious about, and yet they will pass away. They don't last. And because of this, we ought to be seeking that which concerns Christ in his coming kingdom, which will last forever. Our earthly activity, therefore, should reflect heavenly priorities. We see a similar instruction given by the Apostle John in his first epistle in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. This kind of idea of of loving them with a sense of attachment to them and chasing after them as your greatest priority. Don't, Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life or pride in what you have, that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but... Whoever does, the will of God abides forever. So what are your priorities in your own life? What are your priorities? We saw the kind of perspective we're being called to have. It is a matter of priority. What are your priorities? What are your goals? What, What things do you take most delight in? What things are you pursuing and and diligently giving yourself to? What would that be for you? And the question is, are any of these things, are are these things subject to and shaped by the things that are above? That is, the things that accord with God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Are your priorities, goals, your pursuits, are they subject to and shaped by the things that are pleasing to Christ and to the Father? 
What do you see when you honestly examine your own life? What do you see? How would you answer those questions? Or better yet, how, what do others see? How would they answer that? When they observe your lifestyle, what you give your time and effort to, what would they say you're living for? What would they say is your top priority or priorities? What priorities does your life reflect? Paul says, if you were raised with Christ, you should be seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Why should we be seeking the things that are above? Well, because if you have truly been born again, then you have been delivered from slavery to sin and from the power of Satan, and you have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. That is why he saved us, by the way. He didn't just save a sinner so that they would be spared from the coming judgment. He saved them to own them, to transform them, and to make them conform to his own likeness. He has good works he's prepared for us to walk in. We have a, a service to render now unto him, an ability to do it because we have been made alive and have the power of his spirit and his grace, which enables us. So we remain in the world, but we're no longer of the world. And the one who saved you, the one who gave you life, the one to whom you now belong, your deliverer, your redeemer, your king, the Lord Jesus Christ, where is he? He is in heaven. He is exalted to the highest place of honor, to the loftiest position of prominence, the greatest seat of power. He is seated at the right hand of God. And he is calling you to be setting your mind on and seeking the things that are above that concern him and his purposes for you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. He is God the Son, whom God the Father appointed heir of all things. Back in chapter 1, Paul stated that all things were created through him and for him, for Christ. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, building his church and interceding for his saints until he returns to establish his everlasting kingdom upon the earth. That's his plans. These are the realities, then, that should shape our priorities and our pursuits in life so that we are centered on Christ, on his agenda, on his will. In the MacArthur New Testament commentary, uh, MacArthur says this, and I think it's very uh, helpful. He says, preoccupation with the eternal realities that are ours in Christ is to be the pattern of the believer's life. We should be preoccupied with those things. Paul is not advocating, he says, a form of mysticism. Rather, he desires that the Colossians' preoccupation with heaven govern their earthly responses. To be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there and his purposes, plans, provisions, and power. It is also to view the things, people, and events of this world through his eyes and with an eternal perspective, end quote. So how do we get ourselves to where we ought to be then in seeking things that are above? How do we get there? How do we get to the point of being preoccupied, so to speak, righteously preoccupied with Christ and his coming kingdom? Well, we have that answer in verse 2. Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
Because the reality is we won't be seeking the things that are above unless we are actively and persistently setting our minds on them rather than on the things that are on earth. Again, the command is in the present tense and it indicates uh, continuous action. And be setting your minds on things above is the command. Be setting your minds on things that are above. This involves the discipline of your mind, specifically training it to think heavenward, directing it towards the things that are pleasing to Christ. There's an active work there in how we think. We need to train our minds to think heavenward. We need to direct them towards the things that are pleasing to Christ. There is a discipline there. And this requires the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, and we are relying upon and experiencing his power when we humbly receive, submit to, and apply God's written word, the scriptures. That's how we set our minds. That's how we direct our thinking and train it heavenward, direct it towards the things that are pleasing to Christ. We need to continually receive the word of God. We need to inform and sanctify and renew our minds with the life-giving and life-sustaining word of God. That is step one. That is the ultimate step if we are to be heavenly-minded. In chapter one, Paul shared his prayer for the Colossians that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's the order. We need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How we live and speak and and act is determined by how we think, and how we think is shaped by what we are filling our minds with. What we are filling our minds with, then, is what we will be setting them on. So we need to have a heavenly perspective, and that can only truly be shaped and strengthened and sustained by God's written word. Now notice in verse 2 that Paul essentially gives two commands. Number one, what we are to be doing, setting our minds on things that are above. And the second part, what we are not to be doing, setting our minds on things that are on earth. Similar to what the Apostle John wrote about not loving the world the things of the world. One commentator, Matthew Henry, said, we must not dote upon the things that are on earth, nor expect too much from them, in order that we may set our affections on heaven. For heaven and earth are contrary one to the other, and a supreme regard to both is inconsistent. And the prevalence of our affection, he says, to one will proportionally weaken and abate our affection to the other. So we can't be wholly devoted in in our thoughts, in our thinking, to the things above and the things that are of this life, on this earth. This is consistent with what the Lord Jesus said. He said, what no one can serve two masters... For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The Lord also said that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches will choke the word of God in your life and make it unfruitful. So if you're preoccupied with earthly things, the effect 
is it chokes the word of God in your life and makes it unfruitful. It doesn't lead you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It cripples you spiritually. Have you allowed your mind to be so consumed with earthly, material, and temporal matters that your affection for and devotion to Christ has grown cold? What what have you been preoccupied with? How has it impacted your spiritual life? How has it impacted your sense of closeness to the Lord? How has it impacted your obedience to Christ? Your love for him and his church? Your faithfulness to him? Has your mind been filled so much with earthly things that it's become close to them and distant from Christ? And again, this isn't just... uh, inherently sinful things. It's just earthly things, temporal things. Has all the noise from news, politics, social media, entertainment, has all that noise filled your mind so that there's no room to see things in the light of eternity and the coming kingdom of God and the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ? What have you been filling your mind with What have your thoughts been mostly preoccupied with? Things above? Or mostly the temporal, fleeting things in our our lives that, that don't last and are really just distractions from our calling? We must keep in mind that in the fallen world in which we live, this fallen world is not only filled with countless temptations to sin, but also constant distractions that turn our thoughts away from Christ. There's no shortage of distractions, are there? And that's why we must be proactive in setting our minds on Christ and the things that align with his will. Another commentator wrote this, Believers are not to be concerned only with the trivialities of the temporal. We are to be preoccupied with the things that get top billing in heaven. Heavenly values are to capture our imaginations, emotions, thoughts, feelings, ideas, and actions. Think about that. When was the last time you would say that time reading your Bible, doing a study, sitting under teaching, any of those things had that effect on you? It captured your imagination, captured your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, your, your ideas and actions, stirred you up. Is that how you approach your scripture reading? Is that how you approach your learning of the scriptures? Sometimes we have that kind of reaction with things that are fictional or just merely entertainment. But we have the living and active word of God here that is life-giving and life-sustaining. That's what we ought to let capture our affections, capture our will, our thoughts, and be preoccupied with. And Paul explains then in verse 3 why the things that are on earth and the temporal concerns of daily life should not dominate our minds. Here's why. Verse 3, he wrote, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you've truly been born again and are reconciled to God through faith in Christ, then you have died. Spiritually speaking, you've died, and your life is no longer bound to this present world that's passing away. This is not all that there is for you. 
You have been raised with Christ, as Paul said in verse 1. You have been born from above, and the new life that has been given to you comes from Christ and is hidden with Christ, and it's kept secure in him. It's hidden in him. It is kept secure in him. And consider what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, in his Sermon on the Mount. Oh, no, in, in John 10, sorry. In John 10, this is what the Lord Jesus said. Concerning your life being kept secure in him. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if you've truly been born again, then your life is hidden, kept secure with Christ in God. The things on earth which are destined to perish then are not your life. The things that many people are so concerned about do not affect your eternal security. Money is not your life. Material possessions are not your life. Christ is your life. And he is seated in heaven at the right hand of God. Your life, your eternal life is kept secure in him. Therefore, your life here and now, Paul is trying to get this point across, your life here and now should be lived heavenward. Heavenward. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, as the Lord Jesus taught, Matthew chapter 6, similar exhortation here. The Lord said this, and this is one of those passages you probably need to keep reading on a regular basis over and over again. Do not be anxious about your life, the Lord said. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. I'm just getting all the way down to the basic necessities. He says, do not be anxious about these things. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Does that help? Stressing out? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, again, unbelieving Gentiles, they seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So back in our passage in Colossians, and in Paul gives a, a word of encouragement in verse 4. What does he say? He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
seeking the things that are above and setting your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, may seem strange to those who are outside of Christ, who don't know him. Living with this heavenly perspective on your life may seem even wasteful to those who are living their best lives now. Get it while you can, YOLO. You may be dismissed, despised, even ridiculed, even persecuted because of those priorities. Loyalty to Christ, faithfulness to Christ, heavenly priorities above all else. But Paul says your consolation is coming. You will be comforted. People may accuse you saying that your devotion to Christ and preoccupation with that uh, which concerns him is not doing any earthly good. You're no earthly good, Christian. So heavenly minded, you're not any earthly good. But Paul says, your vindication is coming. He says, when Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Be heavenly minded. He is coming again. And when he comes, you will be glorified. You will be rewarded. You will be comforted, vindicated. And this is the, of course, looking ahead to the return of Christ for his church at which point the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are still alive will be caught up and transformed in an instant, and we'll all be glorified. We'll be made just like him. At his appearing, Christ will take us to be with him in heaven until the appointed day comes for him to return and establish his kingdom upon the earth. That is our hope, the hope of glory, future hope, Christ's return for us, and Christ's return to set up his kingdom, his everlasting kingdom and we will share in it with him. And similar to Paul, the Apostle John also pointed to our future glorification at Christ's appearing as motivation to faithfulness and holy living here and now. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. How does the hope of glory purify us? This glorious hope that we have, this, this future that we have with Christ, how does that purify us? Well, it causes us to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on things that are above so that we grow in Christ and are conformed more and more to his likeness. Because we have that hope, it motivates us to have those priorities now, to live for Christ now, to set our minds on the things concerning him, and the result is we are conformed more to his likeness. We are sanctified. The hope of future glory motivates the Christian towards holiness and faithfulness to Christ now. Your labor is not in vain. Your work is not in vain. Your service unto him is not in vain. And, of course, his grace is sufficient for you in all of it. One day we will see him face to face and be glorified. And we're to live in light of that day. We're to maintain heavenly priorities so that we might hear the Lord say to each of us upon his return, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't you want to hear, be greeted with those words when you are united to Christ, when you're joined with him, when you meet him face to face? 
Well, we have the, the calling that we have here in this passage right now, then. We are to be about his business, seeking his priorities. Let his priorities be our priorities. His will, our will conform to his will. Our desires and affections conform to those things that are pleasing to him. And until that glorious day, we need each other's help. The Christian life is not meant to be lived out alone. We need to encourage one another to be conformed to Christ's likeness here and now by immersing our minds in his life-giving word and seeking together to carry out the things that are pleasing to him. That's how we can minister to one another. We each need to pursue Christ and set our minds on things above and be seeking after him, but we need to be encouraging each other along the way, sharpening one another, holding each other accountable. That's the ministry of the body of Christ. We need one another so that we all together might grow up in him, be built up in his love, by his grace, and move towards that hopeful future that he has appointed for us. May we all be faithful now to have his priorities. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for enabling us to just pause and, and reflect upon the teaching of your word and your commandments for us, and specifically this morning, your commandments given to us through the Apostle Paul. And oftentimes we, we set our minds just on, on things that we, we think are just practical and more urgent and pressing, and usually those things are the temporal things, the fleeting things. And we can allow ourselves to be so anxious about what's happening in the world, what's happening even in our own uh, private lives, Lord. Uh, there are many cares and concerns in this life and things that we allow to trouble us, and yet you remind us uh, to have our thoughts lifted out of that, to be setting our minds on, on your eternal purposes. And oftentimes we find that so hard to do because our flesh is weak. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be seeking the things that are above, to be seeking the things that are concerning you, the thing, uh, aligned with your will, and to be setting our minds upon you and doing that through the instruction of your word, through the scriptures, that we would read them and meditate on them, that we would receive instruction through them and exhortation, encouragement through one another uh, given by them, Lord. Help us. Help us that we might all mature in you. Help us grow in our sanctification. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of you and help us to do the very thing that you're telling us to do will help us get there, to have our minds filled with the knowledge of your will. May we do that as we, as we receive your word and instruction, we read the scriptures. May your word have its work in us so that we might be faithful here and now and live in light of that eternal future you have appointed for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.